This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We were talking about uh, what has transpired uh, in Israel over the last three days. We also learned today that the Israeli military has called up an unprecedented 300,000 reservists and was imposing a total blockade of the Gaza Strip in a sign that it may be planning a ground assault in response to the devastating weekend attack by Hamas gunmen. This is a question and a story about the military. Uh, this is a um, story that has many layers of history, but it's also a personal one as well for our next guest. Nico Slavinsky is Vice President of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. He has family in Israel as well, and he was kind enough to join us today. Nico, thank you for dropping by and chatting with us on this very important issue. Thank you for having me, Jess. It's good to be here to talk about this. Uh, I guess the first question is, what is what goes through your mind over the last three days in regards to what you're seeing, what you're hearing, and what is transpiring uh, in Israel? Yeah, well, that's that's a really good question. It's, it's a whirlwind of thoughts and feelings over the last three days. Uh, feelings of concern, feelings of, feelings of anguish for friends and family mm-hmm. uh, who have been the victims of a terror pogrom launched by terrorist organization Hamas. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister, my father, my cousins... My thoughts are with all of them and all Israelis who are currently the victims of an unprecedented, unprovoked wave of terrorism. Mm-hmm. And um, you've been speaking with family in Israel. Like, what are you hearing from them? I have, you know, speaking with family over the last number of days has been difficult. Uh, it's not easy to reach people. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the communications networks have collapsed at times. But uh, when I was able to reach my sister. I learned that she was attending the music festival in southern Israel, a uh, festival for peace, a, fest- a festival that celebrated life. And was that, that the trans, trans, uh, tra- tribe of Nova Trance music? Correct. Okay. Yeah, in southern Israel, very close to the border with Gaza. Yeah. She was attending that festival. Uh, at the beginning, we couldn't locate her, but once we did, we learned that she was at the festival. And uh, her words to me were, I had to run for my life. And when I asked her, I said, what do you mean? She's like, I had to run for my life. I had to flee. I had to hide. And I had to run for my life as terrorists who are infiltrating the festival and shooting festival goers in cold blood. So she was hearing that and seeing that and fleeing for her life. Yeah, she was there with her boyfriend. Um, She was fleeing for her life. Uh, Eventually, they found refuge in a nearby army base. And about 10 hours later, they were able to get back to the center of the country. Those were very long, 10 hours for all of us. And I'm here talking to you about this. And I consider myself lucky because I'm able to tell you about my sister's experience. But I cannot help and think about the families that cannot yet know their whereabouts or what happened to their loved ones that attended the festival. So did she at all mention as to how, uh, did they just arrive by vehicle? Uh, did they fly in? How, how, how did, did, did she mention how they first arrived? Yeah, so the recollection is that, you know, this was, this, was, this was a music festival. It was a long, long 
evening of music that went into the morning and people were partying, people were having a good time, people were celebrating life and peace. And, you know, these are young Israelis and, and you know, young adults and teenagers. Um, and all of a sudden they saw, um, she described it to me, as objects flying in. Um, we have learned since then that Palestinian terrorists were paragliding uh, mm-hmm. into the site. And immediately as they landed, they started shooting people uh, in cold blood uh, all around. Uh, about half of the declared people murdered, of the 800 people murdered in Israel, almost less than half, but about half are people that were attending the festival. Oh, wow. So you can My imagine the, the massacre and the murder and, and, you know, what ensued as terrorists were walking around and finding, you know, the Israelis uh, who were trying to hide and who were trying to run for their lives. Uh, you were, your family obviously is from Israel. Um, you lived in Israel for a time as well? I lived in Israel, yeah. I lived there for about 10 years of my life. I lived uh, in the south of, southern part of the country and in the city of Jerusalem as well, as I was studying in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father still lives there, and with him too. I was trying to locate him, of course, as everything was unfolding. Um, and I couldn't do that at the beginning. And then I learned after I, I found him, I was able to locate him and talk to him that he had been ordered to shelter in place in the city uh, of Ashdod in Israel, which is about 45 kilometers from the border of Gaza. Um, and he was ordered to shelter in place for two reasons. One is terrorists from Gaza, from Hamas uh, terror organization, were shooting terror rockets into Israel. Mm-hmm. So he had to, again, run for his life into the bomb shelter. But also terrorists made it to Ashdod, and the army ordered all residents to shelter in place as they were coming around the city looking for these terrorists. Eventually they found them, and they arrested some of them, but there was a gunfight that ensued. Are you um, shocked by not just the brazen nature of the attack, but Israel's defense is generally known as, uh, you know, it's always viewed as uh, very professional, uh, and has been able, through its uh, security network, been able to deal with some of the challenges before them. But in this case, that so much was able to occur, and it was a security failure, many are calling it. Uh, were you surprised by that? So, look, I'm an Israeli-Canadian. Having lived there, I served in the military like most Israelis do. Mm-hmm. I am sure that there will be a time of reckoning for Israeli society and for the Israeli military establishment and the government to mm-hmm. come back to analyze what actually happened and what worked and what did not work. I can tell you that what I'm shocked about is that terror organization Hamas decided to launch a terror program on Israeli civilians and they went home by home, community by community in southern Israel, looking to torture, murder, rape Israelis in their homes as they were waking up on their day of rest, the Sabbath, and as we were also celebrating the Jewish holiday of Simchat Torah. Mm -hmm. That is unprecedented and unprovoked terror attack. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that there are um, a call for 300,000 reservists. Um, are uh, people in Israel and, and, and even locally here, I mean, the sizable Jewish community, very much connected to to, to their heritage? Um, is the general thinking that this is going to be a long war? This is not something that is going to be dealt with in a month or six months. This is a long war, an existential war. I don't currently serve in the military, so it's hard for me to predict what what that could look like. I can tell you that definitely there's a sense that uh, terror needs to be uprooted Mm -hmm. and that 
the reign of Hamas, the terror reign of Hamas needs to be brought to an end, that Israeli, the Israeli military forces need to dismantle the terror infrastructure in Gaza. Mm -hmm. uh, many Israelis here are looking to go back to Israel to volunteer in their army units. I know for myself that if I would be in Israel right now, I would be serving in my unit as well. Mm -hmm. So yes, there is concern for their loved ones, for their families, and for what this looks like in the days and weeks to come. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Nikol Slabinski, Vice President of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Uh, Nico also has a lot of family in Israel. He has served in the Israeli military as well. Uh, Nico, you know, right now there's going to be a lot of folks um, in our Jewish community here uh, in Vancouver and here in British Columbia wanting to do something, you know, wanting to help in some way. Um, what can you tell them in regards to what will be happening over the next little while? You know, I get that question asked a lot by people of what they can do from here. Mm -hmm. And my message to the community, but also to our friends in the community at large, is that there are a number of things they can do. One is stay informed. Right? Stay informed about what's happening. Check in our news. Check mm -hmm. in with each other. Right? It's important that we take stock of what's happening, but also take stock of each other and really reach out and see how you're doing. We never should take for granted that people have families and friends and people have concerns. So that's the second thing they can do, check in with each other. Mm -hmm. Number three right now, the Jewish Federation of Greater Vancouver, kind of like umbrella organization, so to speak, like our United Way, mm -hmm. is running a fundraising appeal um, from the community here to fundraise and send those funds to Israel to assist with the community needs uh, for the communities most affected by the terror program that just took place in Israel mm -hmm. uh, at the hands of uh, Hamas. So that's number three. And number four, come stand with us tomorrow at 5 p.m. in the Jackpool Plaza by the Vancouver Convention Center. The community is gathering. The community is gathering to show support and solidarity with the people of Israel and with the land of Israel in the wake of this unprecedented terrorist attack by Hamas. Mm -hmm. Come stand with us. Come meet the community and come be with us in this time of need. Uh, it's always interesting that communities, uh, you know, you may be far away from um, your homeland, your motherland, but I always feel, feel those people also probably keep that culture, that community closer to their heart than anybody else just because of distance. Um, how does the community itself sort of take all this in from so far away? You know, you watch things on a screen uh, and you want to do something, but you're here and you've given me some examples of what you're going to be doing, and that's great. But, I mean, g give me a sense of the impact it has on the community here locally in regards to sort of what they're going through, what you think you're gonna, we're gonna, they'll be going through over the next few weeks and months. Yeah, you know, there's no question that the connection that we as a community have to an ancestral homeland, the land of Israel, mm -hmm. is unbreakable. So you can imagine the concern that that brings on when you see your homeland under attack by a terrorist organization. Um, concern and wish there's a lot of very graphic gruesome images online right mm -hmm. that we don't need to describe here on the show but you know that people have seen people are concerned for their loved ones people are concerned for their family many people in our community here are looking at one of two things how can they get to israel to help mm -hmm. right so how can they travel from here to israel now but also how can they perhaps get some of their loved ones out of israel and bring them to canada so they can be together during this very, very difficult time. We as a community are resilient. That's why we are gathering tomorrow at 5 p.m. at the Jackpool Plaza to express our support, our solidarity with the land of Israel and the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we will see what the next few weeks and days bring for the community. But the community is strong and the community is united. And I think that that is an important message for people to understand that we as a community stand united and stand united with Israel. Um, 
I mentioned at the beginning of this interview that uh, there are 300,000 uh, reservists uh, being called upon uh, to help at this moment with what is transpiring is in Israel. Can you see some of your uh, Canadian-Israeli uh, compatriots wanting to go and, and, and participate and, and be involved as one of the reservists right here in Vancouver wanting to go and help? Undoubtedly. Uh, those uh, Canadian Israelis of dual citizenship that are here in the community or Israelis that are here you know, on a work permit or visiting are looking for ways to go back and to help. It's, it, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if many of them are also looking for ways to go back and enlist back in their units and go help in, in the military effort to uproot terror from Gaza. Mm. Uh, I want to go back to the comment you made about your sister. It's a very difficult time. Um, she is doing much better, I hope, uh, as one as one can at this point because of what you, she has just gone through. I mean, I'm just thinking she had to flee for her life 10 hours at a base before she is then saved, right? Yeah, so um, my sister is very special to me. Um, she is my younger sister. Yeah. We have 25 years of uh, age difference between us. She could be my child in mm-hmm. many ways. Yeah. Um, uh, she grew up with my wife and I, and when we reach her, and we were able to talk to her and her boyfriend about what transpired in the festival. Um, there was a lot of emotion. Um, she recounted to us what happened, which I shared a little bit with you about what happened. Mm-hmm. I could not imagine having to flee for my life uh, and bullets flying over my head and to have to find refuge right, in a nearby um, area mm-hmm. that was protected by some, by some trees uh, from terrorists and to then have to walk to an army base to seek further refuge until I was able to get to the center of the country. Mm. That is, in a nutshell, her story of survival. Um, whenever she recounts it, there are tears. There is anguish. Uh, I don't know that my sister is is ready to talk about that. Mm-hmm. I think that it takes time to process mm-hmm. that kind of experience. I have endured and survived terrorist attacks myself, and it's something that never leaves you. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe time does... Um, something and helps process some of that, but the experience never leaves you, and that that feeling also never leaves you. So, we're checking in with her as, as as the best as we can. It's it's not always easy, also because of the time difference, but also because it's hard to reach her right now. The telecommunication networks are somewhat collapsed at times. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I will be able to tell you more in the next couple of days once we talk to her some more. But right now, she's not really open to talk about her experience. Yeah, well, I, you know what, I, I appreciate you coming in today. It's a very difficult period uh, for many people. And I, I want to thank you uh, for making time for this, our audience here, and to share uh, some of your thoughts on this incredibly vital, uh, important story that uh, does uh, continue to evolve hour by hour. Nico, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Jess. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
Vancouver police and RCMP have increased patrols around synagogues and other Jewish community institutions, along with mosques as well. The impact of what is transpiring uh, in Israel is profound, particularly uh, to the Jewish community here uh, in Vancouver. Joining me now is Ezra Shankin, CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Vancouver. Ezra, thank you for joining us today. Oh, I'm absolutely happy to. Um, walk me through what you're hearing and seeing here in Vancouver from the Jewish community after what we've been watching uh, on their newscast now for three days? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very important for people to understand how small the Jewish community is globally. I mean, we're really talking about 14 million people. What do we have, 8 billion people on earth? 14 Mm -hmm. million of them are Jewish. Um, This is a small community. That means it's an intertwined community. And when you have this many people savagely murdered, uh, you're going to have connections. You're going to have a lot of connections within the community. You're going to have a lot of pain within the community, even reaching as far as here geographically. And at the Jewish Federation, we've worked very hard to We have a team working at the office right now trying to get in touch with families, making sure that we're there to support people. Uh, This is an emotionally challenging time for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those that are uh, looking for support, wanting to, uh, to speak to you and many of your members as well, is it a question of just getting people out of Israel right now? Is that the biggest concern for them? Or, or is it a more existential issue where it's just like, you know what, I want to help, I want to go over there, what can we do? Actually, I'll give you a third one. Is my family member alive or not? Hmm. I mean, we are absolutely dealing with that type of situation right now where it's, is my family member alive? Is my family member, has has my family member been taken hostage? As many of you know, we have a member of our community, uh, Ben Mizrahi, former student at King David High School, you know, down at a music festival, um, you know, go, you know, music festival is uh, attacked by Hamas savagely. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, last we heard, he was helping one of his friends. He was a trained medic. Uh, I think his friend might have been shot. Uh, they find his phone, but do not find him. And now we have his family en route to Israel to just try to be closer to where he is uh, to try and figure out what happened. That's that's real for us. That's that's really happening here right now. So the idea of people getting out or people wanting – a lot of this is about the most basic questions. Is my grandmother alive? Is my aunt alive? Is my uncle alive? You know, what's going on? So this individual right now is missing. Yeah, Absolutely. You're far away uh, from Israel. Um, what do you do at this point in regards to showing your support? You know, for, for us, there's a couple of things that we can do. One, we've opened up an emergency campaign for the community, a Victims of Terror Fund. Uh, that's uh, through JewishVancouver.com. People can support these 1,000-plus families connected to uh, the dead, um, those who are injured. Um, and those who are captured. Um, you know, this is a way that we can send much-needed support over. The second thing that we can do is really be there for people who are connected to people, support our community, be, be together, be in unison. We're getting together tomorrow uh, down at Jackpool Plaza mm-hmm. at uh, 5 p.m. Uh, we're, we're calling it um, Let Our People Go. Uh, this is really focusing on Ben and so many others that have not been found, that are feared captured uh, in this moment. We have over 150 people still in Gaza being held, men, women, and children, some of which are connected to Canadian families. Uh, So we are really trying to bring uh, those people of conscience in our community together to 
really support each other in this moment. Um, just outside these offices, outside uh, outside of CKNW at the Vancouver Art Gallery, there was a rally there for those who are uh, supportive of the uh, Palestinian cause. Uh, your thoughts on that rally and many other rallies like it across the country? Yeah, I, I, I would say we've always taken the stance that um, they're everybody has a right to free speech, and and frankly, I, I I've I myself am, am consider myself pro Palestinian. I, I, I want the Palestinian people to have a country of their own. Canada wants the Palestinian people to have a country of their own. I, you know, we want Israel to be able to live in peace with that, with that country. And I, I really do, my heart breaks for, for those in Gaza that are um, adversely affected um, when military operations of this type are um, happening. And I think we have to know when it is an appropriate time to celebrate and not. Hamas is no good for the Palestinian people. It's no good for the global community. It is a designated terror group, not by me, but by Canada and by the United States and most of the Western world. Mm-hmm. These, these acts by Hamas do nothing to make Palestinians safer they do nothing to advance the Palestinian cause. And frankly, I think they make things even worse for the Palestinians. Uh, it is expected that Israel will be responding ferociously to this. We've lost a 1,000 people, innocent people, not soldiers, innocent people, mothers, daughters, grandmothers, children murdered in front of their parents, women dragged out of their house and raped and then dragged into cars and brought into into Gaza to be held captive and to be raped more. I I don't see how this is a time for celebration. I don't see how this is a justifiable action. I think that Hamas has gone way too far, and I think that it's uh, at the detriment of the Palestinian people. Mm-hmm. Uh, does the Jewish community feel safe here? You know, we're very very lucky. By and large, people in British Columbia and across Canada are very supportive of their Jewish neighbors. Um, these are friends and colleagues and partners. I will say in moments like this, when you have people marching through the streets who are celebrating the, the uh, savage massacre that happened at the hands of terrorists, it would be as if there were, would we feel safe, would we have felt safe if the day after 9-11 people went out to rally in support of Mm Al-Qaeda. We just wouldn't do it, right? We wouldn't do it because it's in such poor taste because, oh, by the way, we have to show up to work tomorrow. How can you show up to work tomorrow with a a straight face knowing that you came out supporting a terrorist organization like this, that you went out and made people feel unsafe today when they're feeling so incredibly unsafe because of the way the world is right now? We are speaking to Ezra Schenken, CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Vancouver. Of course, we're talking about uh, what has transpired over the last three days uh, in Israel. Uh, Vancouver Police uh, Police Department and the RCMP have also increased patrols around synagogues and other Jewish community institutions. Uh, so let me just touch on that for a moment. I mean, it, as you say, you know, Jewish people feel safe in this country. Uh, in regards to this heightened moment, even with more police patrols, uh, things are calm and still people, I'm sure they're trying to process what, the, what, what has transpired, but generally everybody is safe and everybody's doing okay. 
Yeah, I, I would say that we are very, very lucky to have law enforcement. Um, I think we enjoy this along with our friends in the Muslim community and other communities that have been targeted in, in the past. Um, you know, I, I have to give enormous praise to the VPD and the RCMP. They've been great partners. You know, a lot of times when we're, you know, working together with them and putting police cars outside of houses of worship, it's it's not necessarily, the threat isn't necessarily that we feel that the, the house of worship is going to be attacked, but like many ethnocultural faith groups, heritage traditions and stuff like that, mm-hmm. if people stop showing up, that's a that's a really difficult thing for us. How do we transmit our traditions if they, if nobody comes through the door? So often, what what we do in partnership, which I which I'm very proud of, is really just ensuring that people feel safe coming into the institutions, so that they can enjoy the things that our community has to offer, both Jewish and non-Jewish people. Mm-hmm. What happens next? Now, I mean, there's the military response, there is a political response. But then, you know, and this is not something that's going to end in a couple of weeks, as I said. This is going to go for a very long time, especially this particular moment in regards in response from Israel and from any other nations as well. Uh, what happens moving forward in your mind? Yeah, I think that we we are dealing with a destabilized situation. And this was purposely done to destabilize the situation, right? Mm-hmm. I think many of us who are well-read in this, you know, know that Iran, this is this was Iran-backed, and uh, Iran is, has a vested interest, the Islamic Republic has a vested interest, uh, not just in, you, you might think they only have the vested interest in, in, in treating their women terribly uh, and, and cramping, you know, you know, stamping on women's rights that we've been standing up for and standing with the women of Iran. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when they have a little bit of extra time, they also would love to have control over the whole region. And the idea of Saudi normalization is just very difficult for them. So we're going to deal with a destabilized situation. They took orders from Iran. They got the high sign from Iran, uh, you know, to go in and, and get this thing done. They were trained by Iran to, to make this thing happen. So I we have to be there for each other. I also think it's it's very important that we continue to have lines of dialogue open all over our community. A lot of different people are going through a lot of different things. This is a regional issue um, that's going on. We happen to be feeling the pain of this right now. But it's very, very important that we don't allow that pain to overtake our want and our need to keep the lines of communication open across across the communities. The last time we had a major flare-up uh, in in Gaza, I, I remember, um, you know, we it coincided. It just happened to coincide with uh, when the, there was a terrible vehicle-borne attack on a family in, in Ontario, mm-hmm. a Muslim family. And we, we really made it a point, even though we knew that things were a little bit frayed because what was going on overseas, we came down to the 8th Avenue Mosque and we stood with them. We stood with them in that moment. And frankly, we were some of the only people who were there standing with our friends in the Muslim community at the 8th Avenue Mosque that moment. And it was a very powerful moment for me because what it, what it said to me was, we can't allow these things to overtake us. We are going to sit and we are going we have to mourn, we have to be strong, we have to move forward, we have to support the reconstruction on the ground in Israel, the families, the victims, we're going to do that. And but at the same time we keep the lines of communication open here in this community. So the relationship is there with the Muslim community Ab- faith faith to faith? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is deeply important to me that I maintain a strong strong relationship not just with our Muslim community, with all our faith 
faith communities. You know, we have an incredible group called the Other People that are out there with our, our interfaith liaison, Rabbi Bregman, um, who are representing all of the groups that have felt othered in the room. And they're going school to school. And they're teaching kids about what it is to be other inside the room. These are programs that need to continue as we as we deal with these tremendously traumatic moments for our people. And so I am very proud that I come from a community. And that's what makes it even more painful to be singled out in this way, to be treated in this way, to watch death come upon our, our community in this way. Because we have tried so hard to do so much good out there for our world, for our community, and we are going to continue to do this. This is not going to stop us from being a light unto the nations and doing beautiful work to help people. Um, as you say, you want to help uh, Israel rebuild as well. Do you see uh, people from Vancouver of the Jewish faith wanting to volunteer in the military as well? Can you see that happening? You know, right now what's what's happening is is Israel's recalling its military. So so the bulk of Israel's military is is uh, vol- people who have already finished their mandatory service. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're called miluim. They're reserves. They they get called back in. So right now, you know, they have to get back and do that. I I haven't seen yet, you know, people jumping up to volunteer because there is enough strength there within the miluim. I would imagine. In past wars, uh, existential moments in Israel's journey, I will tell you the story of my father. During the Six-Day War in 1967, my mm-hmm. father was on the last plane in before they closed the airport. He was an American volunteer. He didn't know what he was doing there, but he just needed to be there because it felt like Israel's was existentially threatened in that moment. Mm-hmm. And my father was on the ground, and he went up all the way up into the north of Israel. And for six days, he helped on on, on kibbutzim, which were co-op farms, uh, and, and he dug trenches, and he did anything that he could to help. That's the connection that we have to our spiritual homeland. We have that kind of connection. And other people have connections to other parts of the world. But we have that feeling of connection mm-hmm. uh, that we have a history of going and helping. I feel bad that even though I know that I'm doing my job here, that people are hurting there and I can't embrace them in my arms. I can't hold them in my arms right now because I'm here. Mm. I can only hold their family here and do it by proxy to support them. Yeah. Ezra, I know it's been a very difficult time for the community as it uh, uh, takes all of this in. And every day there are more stories, more images that come from uh, from Israel. I do want to thank you for making time for our audience today to talk a little bit about uh, what you're seeing and hearing as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, Chaz, I just want to thank you. I think that you making time for space for this conversation means the world to us in this moment. You're you're a real hero to us, giving us this moment on, on the radio to talk about our pain. Let's talk streaming services. I think we all love streaming services. I was just watching um, a movie last night on Netflix. Well, recently, the Wall Street Journal uh, reported that Netflix Netflix plans to raise the price of its ad-free service 
a few months after the continuing Hollywood actor strike ends. Uh, it would be the latest in a series of recent price increases by many of the country's largest streaming platforms in Canada and the U.S. as well. Now, the streaming service, uh, in this case Netflix, is discussing raising prices in several markets globally, but will likely begin in the U.S. and Canada first, uh, the Wall Street Journal reports. Now, over the past year or so, the cost of major ad-free streaming services has gone up by 25 Joining me now to talk a little bit about Netflix's pending uh, price increase is Andy Brar, tech and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. Happy Thanksgiving, Andy. Happy Thanksgiving, Jazz. And no better way to say Happy Thanksgiving than, hey, here's another price hike for streaming, another streaming service. So why do you think Netflix is doing this? I think what's going to happen after this actor strike is over, because the writer strike just ended, but the actor strike is still ongoing. But once it ends, Hollywood is going to be a lot different than it ever was. This is a monumental shift for Hollywood. And the actors know that. And that's why a big concern has to do with AI, their name, their image, their likeness, their voice. Because the studios, you know, we've, we've talked about like CGI or like CGI in movies for a long time. But what happens when CGI and AI get together? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to be a big shift. And the actors know it. That's why they're striking. And Netflix knows that things are going to change after this is over. And there might be a consolidation, I think, in that industry uh, after the strike is over. And they still need to make money. And of course, they're going to make it by charging us more. So we've had inflation. This is an example of streamflation that we're going to see that is happening across all the other streaming platforms as well. Uh, there was also a talk in that Wall Street Journal report that it's most likely that Amazon will also raise prices. Yeah. Um, it's upcoming as well. Uh, and Amazon, that's not even their core business. Their core business is, is selling us detergent and books and everything else on Amazon. Um, is this also a case, do you think, that maybe these streaming companies have sort of hit their limit in regards to people wanting to sign up? But they're looking at their own family budget going, wait a minute, uh, why do I need to be paying for this, uh, for this streaming service and that streaming service? Do you think the streaming services have just matured as a, as, a, as a sector now that people said, okay, that's enough? Yes, absolutely. This sector has matured. You know, we used to talk about cord cutters, people who would cut their cable and then just get a Netflix subscription. But then you had Amazon Prime, then you had Disney Plus, you had Apple TV Plus, you had so many more choices. Now, the majority of the way that people are consuming content is on these streaming platforms. But like you mentioned, with inflation and the cost of all of these, you really can't afford to have it. And so what did we do? We were sharing our passwords. We were bartering with different family members. I'll give you my Netflix subscription. You give me your Disney Plus. But now all of them are cracking down on passwords. We talked about that with Netflix doing that earlier. Disney Plus is now doing that in Canada as well. But they still have to make their money. So they really have two ways. One is to stop the password sharings to increase you know, their subscribers. And two is to offer ad-supported models. So if you can't afford you know, the, their, their high-end different plans, you can still get it, but you're going to have to watch some ads. Um, that's how that's how the industry is is going, and unfortunately, the the costs are going to go to the consumer, and the consumers just can't afford it. So, we're going to have to start looking at alternatives uh, to actually having to pay a monthly fee to watch all of these TV and movies that we love. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I I had uh, the Paramount Network uh, for a couple of months, but there were only like two or three shows I wanted to watch, and I, it was yes. a 
one of those uh, uh, moments where they said, oh, you can get it for half price for two or three months. And I said, oh, let's check it out. And there's a few shows I really liked, watched them. And I said, you know, it's not worth it. So I canceled that. And as of, I think it was the other day, my Apple uh, subscription ran out. And I'm not really going to rush back to to sign up because I still have Disney, I have Amazon, and I have Netflix. That alone, um, and Crave as well. And I think that's way too much already. I mean, I think that we're almost getting to that point where it's, it, it's sort of like you're absolutely right. We're going to have to lose some streaming services or they're going to have to merge in some way. Yes, but there are different new streaming services like Pluto TV. That came out, I believe, earlier this year. And I don't know if you've tried it, Jazz. It's actually pretty good. It feels almost like traditional TV, but they kind of have like older television content. For example, I found MacGyver on there. And so I was like, wow, I'm going to watch that. Like, I haven't watched that since I was a kid. And as an adult, I'm like, how does he save the day with like a pencil and like some bubble gum? So, you know, it, it, it made me realize that you know, maybe I could live without Netflix. There are alternatives. Of course, you have YouTube, but you're going to have to watch ads unless you get their uh, monthly fee. Mm -hmm. But there are alternatives out there for us. And the other thing that I wonder, Jazz, is what about piracy? Are people going to go back to, to pirating all of this content? Because like you said, you will a lot of people join a streaming service just to watch a particular TV show or a movie series. And once they're done, they have no loyalty to that streaming service. They'll cancel it and then move on to something else. I think, we're, so, we're, I think you're right. And I think we're actually probably going to move towards when you sign up for one of these things, you sign up for a year. You don't get the yeah. month by month anymore because that, yeah. that, that leads to a lot of churn, right? And none of these companies uh, want to see that. Do you have any idea how many subscription services uh, you actually pay for monthly? Yeah, I've got that number down pretty good, Jazz. And the way I did it is I actually changed my credit card. And so then I get all these ah. email notifications where it's like, oh, you have to, you know, we're trying to charge you here, but you can't. So I took that as an opportunity to try to reduce uh, the subscription services because you have to remember, it's not just the entertainment platforms like Spotify and say Netflix. It's also productivity tools that have gone to the subscription service. So Microsoft Office 365, that's an annual subscription. Mm -hmm. I used Adobe Creative uh Sweet, you know, for editing videos in Photoshop, that's a subscription. Yeah. If you if you want to store and everybody has a smartphone, all of your photos get stored in Apple iCloud or in with Google Play. That's a subscription. So it gets out of control and we don't realize it, Jazz, because it automatically gets billed on our credit card and often we miss it. So people really don't realize how many subscription services they're actually subscribed to. Uh, and if you tally it up, it hurts. It hurts to see that number. Yeah, I actually went through a bit of a purge. I'm just going through what I have. I have four streaming services. I have uh, satellite radio. Uh, I also have five newspapers. And then I have um, a, a Spotify for music as well. So, And I've had to cut back on some. And even now, this seems way too high as I tell you how much I have. I actually feel pretty bad. That's not that great. Do you think we've hit that wall now, though, that the, where people are going, wait a minute here. I really got to start cutting back on some of this stuff. Absolutely. And I think what you have to do is get the low-hanging fruit, you know, like what, you know, entertainment services can I cut? So. I think now with the password crackdown, Netflix increasing the prices, a lot of people might start entertaining what life is like without Netflix. You know, a lot of millennials, they've grown up with Netflix, but 
people who, you know, had traditional cable, they know what life was like pre-Netflix and they might start considering going back because when you look at the price of streaming services, cable TV is starting to look pretty good, you know, as a price <laughs> for what you get. So no, we kind of went full circle. What's interesting for my, my, my cable bill, uh, I pay $60 a month, but that includes my Netflix subscription yes. and my Crave. And then it also – I get all the sports channels, which a big sports fan, plus all the basic local cable and you know the showcases and home and garden. For 60 bucks, that's not bad. Actually, you don't need anything else really. Yeah, and, and I, I actually tell people I'm, – I'm what, what you call a cord never, Jazz. A lot of millennials are this where they've grown their whole life without actually getting a cable subscription. Mm-hmm. So I've never paid for cable. But in this day and age, you know, I'm looking at the prices of that compared to getting, you know, a couple of streaming services, they, they kind of add up. So it actually might be a good idea. And that's why I think you'll see col- consolidation in Hollywood, because they understand that we can't afford to have all of these different streaming services. Something's got to give. And the fact that now sports is being streamed, you know, I'm a huge boxing fan. And there's been talks that they're making a deal with Amazon Prime for all the big, big fights to be streamed on that platform. That just shows you that there's a big seismic shift happening in the entertainment world, not just with movies and TV shows, but now sporting. So it's like, what, what is the future of cable TV if you start to lose sports and say live news to streamers? I think that might just be the way we consume content in the near future. Yeah, it's interesting because for sports like ESPN, which has major TV rights, those TV rights uh, for sports rights goes away. Those athletes don't make the money that they make. But someone's saying if you had to on its own, if, if ESPN was streaming with actually no TV revenue just on its own, you, they would have to charge $50 a month just for yeah. an ESPN app to have access to the footballs and the basketballs and the hockey and everything else. That's a lot of money. So I don't think they actually have it figured out in regards to what the business model of the future is, whether it's streaming alone or whether it's uh, streaming mixed with traditional TV and advertising. I think it's all sort of up in the air, but uh, they, they just cannot keep raising prices the way they are. Something's got to give along the way, that's for sure. Uh, Andy, thank you for, for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jazz. Well, a spokesman for Hamas's military arm, the Isadine al-Qassam Brigades, warned Israel today that attacks without prior warning on people sheltering in their homes in the Gaza Strip would result in retaliatory execution of captured Israeli civilians. The threat came after Israel announced a full siege of Gaza on the third day of fighting since Hamas's attack began. Uh, Israel's military and in, uh, intelligence apparatus was caught completely off guard by Hamas, resulting in heavy battles uh, in its streets for the first time uh, in decades. Now, Israel has been stunned by a surprise attack and death toll unseen since the 1973 war with Egypt and Syria. That is fomenting calls, of course, to crush Hamas no matter what the cost, rather than continue to try to bottle it up in Gaza. So what is the feeling amongst people in Israel? Joining me now is David Weinberg. Mr. Weinberg is the director of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs uh, Israel office, and he is a senior fellow at the Mizgov Institute for National Security. He joins us now from Israel. David, thank you for speaking to us today. Uh, my honor. Uh, give me a sense of what you're seeing and hearing today uh, in Israel. Well, to be honest with you, uh, Jazz, the situation is is grim. Uh, this is the worst. Israel has suffered the worst assault um, on its uh, populace and its security in its 75 years existence. Um, 
More than 1,000 Israelis have been slaughtered by um, Hamas terrorists who broke into Israel uh, from the Gaza Strip and with, with almost 3,000 Israelis injured. That The numbers are, are, are simply um, uh, enormous and, and, and frightening. It's the singlest, blackest weekend in the history of Israel. And, and even 40 hours after the incursions by this radical Islamic Iranian-backed terrorist group, there are still terrorists loose in southern Israel with firefights ongoing in several locations. And worst of all, they've kidnapped um, at least 100 Israelis um, into Gaza. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're out in the street, is it, uh, is it just quiet in most, most Israeli cities, even if they aren't close to Gaza generally? Are things just very quiet? No, not really, because simultaneously uh, Hamas has been firing rockets and missiles uh, into Israel, over 3,000 rockets and missiles over the last couple of days, uh, as far north as, as Jerusalem um, and Tel Aviv. Um, and there are concerns that um, Hamas's sister organization, another Iranian-backed radical Islamic group called Hezbollah, which sits in Lebanon, is about to open up a second front um, on Israel from its northern border. So the country is on edge. Almost everybody, including me, um, has a son or a son-in-law who has been mobilized uh, on an emergency draft. Uh, the Israeli army is, is based on, uh, on its reserve forces. Uh, Israel has mobilized 300,000 young men over the last three days uh, into the army. Um, and uh, so everybody is, it's, it's very personal. Everybody's affected. Um, it's very scary. Um, it, it, it's, it's also very, um, what should I say? It's also infuriating. Um, the, 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 the audacity and brutality of the attack is, 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 is astounding. Frankly, Israel was caught um, unprepared, mm -hmm. which is also infuriating. Um, Israelis are demanding answers um, uh, from their government. Um, and we all have the sense that um, we're facing a long war uh, because we have to fight back. The the um, government in Israel, there always is um, there are usually coalition governments, of course, and there's always you know disagreements on a variety of issues. In this case, I'm going to assume that this has galvanized opposition parties, parts of the coalition, uh, and today the the leadership is thinking as, as as one Israel at the moment. Yeah, that's correct. Um, in times of such adversity, um, Israelis come together, um, and by tomorrow morning, I assume we'll have what will be called a national unity government, bringing opposition parties um, into Prime Minister Netanyahu's ruling coalition government. Um, uh, when Israel is forced into war um, and is literally fighting for its life, um, the public is, is pulling together and our politicians inevitably uh, have to do so as well. How important is the broader Jewish community in communities like, in countries like Canada and communities like Vancouver, how important are they in regards to uh, just support, uh, whether it be economic or whether it just be uh, philosophical, but how important is the ex expatriate community here, the broader Jewish community? 
So Jews around the world um, hold a, a close affinity, and there are uh, many, many, and deep ties uh, between uh, the Jews of Israel and the Jews of, of Canada. Um, Canadian Jewry is deeply invested um, in uh, the prosperity and, and the success of Israel. Um, every Jewish family in the world has friends and relatives um, who live in Israel, and that's true of the Canadian Jewish community as well. I myself um, made Aliyah, immigrated to Israel some 30 years ago from Toronto, uh, Canada, um, and I have friends and relatives you know, all, all across Canada today, and um, everybody feels this, 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 this attack, this assault um, as an attack um, on them. There also is um, a danger. Um, there is a threat um, made explicit by uh, the Hamas and Hezbollah terrorist groups and their main patron, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran, to expand their uh, offensive operations against Israeli and Jewish targets around the world. So the Jewish community in Canada is on high alert. Are the Israeli people... Uh, I guess the right way to phrase this is: Are they, are they uh, accepting of a long war here? This is not something that ends in a week or a month or even six months. Are they accepting of a of a long war? I, I don't know how to answer your question when you use the word accepting. I think uh, Israelis are resigned. Um, first of all, they're shocked. They're shocked. Uh, the events of this weekend were a real shock. Um, no one believe that an assault like this um, against Israel and such a barbaric assault um, could succeed, but it did. Um, and therefore, um, the public is resigned. Uh, Israel must clear the Hamas terrorists out from the areas they've invited. We have to reassert control of our borders. We need to assemble a full and verified picture of those kidnapped and missing. And as I said, we have to prepare militarily for the, the possibility, maybe even the likelihood of this war expanding into a multi-front war, as I discussed mm -hmm. earlier. Um, we can't go back to the status quo ante where every couple years Hamas starts another altercation with Israel and shoots several thousand missiles into Israeli civilian areas and... Israel strikes back with some pinpoint military strikes, which don't do much. Um, after an assault of this type, uh, which has shattered Israel's security uh, invincibility, um, Israel has no choice um, but to uh, crush um, Hamas, and that is not going to be a easy or short military campaign, unfortunately. David, uh, I know it's a very challenging period uh, uh, for your country. I just wanted to say thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I appreciate um, the concern um, of, of, of you and, and of many Canadians, I'm sure, um, knowing that um, uh, sister democracies um, have our back and are uh, supportive of the things that we will need to do to restore our security um, is greatly appreciated. Thank you.
Welcome back to the show. Vancouver is home to Canada's second largest Filipino community with nearly 134,000 residents. Filipinos in Vancouver make up the third largest Asian Canadian invisible minority group behind the Chinese and South Asian communities. They are a fast growing community themselves and each individual has a story to tell about leaving their native land. Jen Lee Austria Bonifacio has written a novel about the Filipino community's diaspora experience. Reuniting with strangers invites the reader into the fractured and chaotic worlds of Filipino-Canadian families attempting to reassemble after years apart. It is a poignant exploration of cultural loss. Author Genelie Austria Bonifacio joins us now. Genelie, thank you for speaking to us today. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thank you, Jen. Um, your book, Reuniting with Strangers, um, what motivated you to write it? So, when I first graduated from school, um, my job was as, as a school settlement worker, which is like a newcomer counselor. Mm-hmm. And I was put in a lot of schools with very high Filipino population. And following that, I ended up being a consultant in different school boards to teach teachers about the Filipino community and how to reach us better. And honestly, this book came out of both of those experiences because when you work with newcomers, mm-hmm. you feel a lot like their voices are not being heard. And then when you work with teachers, you realize where the gaps are, what teachers don't know, and what, what they're excited to know about, and what they are kind of surprised to know about. And so this book is really just a natural extension of the community work that I've been doing. Mm-hmm. The issue uh, specifically in regards to that, reuniting with strangers, um, is it really a focus on a continued quest for identity for, for so many of the Filipino diaspora? Absolutely. So... When we look at the Filipino newcomer community, what unites so many of us is the issue of family reunification. And when we look at teenagers and then children and the impacts of that over the years, when we look at spouses that can't get along anymore or you know, grandparents that have been left behind in the Philippines and they, they're separated from their own children, what are the long-term impacts of this? And I really wanted to look at reunification and the caregiver experience specifically to that way show people, step back, look into the Filipino apartment buildings and look into their text messages and their emails. What's really happening behind the scenes? Um, The identity thing is so interesting because I feel like oftentimes the Filipino community is associated with being very cheerful, Mm -hmm. being very happy, and we are, don't get me wrong. (laughs) Um, But also, I wanted to make sure that we show a side of anger as well and how emotional things are getting. We are a community that often puts on a very brave face, which is okay, too, but we need to also be able to tell our truth. Mm-hmm. That's how this book came about. Uh, how did you go about your research? Because it is such a wide topic, and there's uh, such a diversity of perspectives and views and experiences. How did you go about your research? That's a great question. So when I told you about being a school board consultant, uh, I run something called Filipino Talks, which basically means I go into different school boards and I help build bridges between educators and Filipino families. Mm-hmm. And before I even go into the schools, though, what I do is I have the staff survey the Filipino students for me. And so it's, th- it's things like, how long were you separated from your mom, uh, from your dad? How happy are you in Canada? How much do you want to go back to the Philippines? How many hours do you work a day? What is your relationship like with your mom and your dad? All these kind of things. So that way I have an idea of what I'm going to be walking into. And also that way when I walk into a school, I can show the teachers, this is data from your own students. This is not data that I just pulled out of the air. These are your own students. 
And so after that, um, doing that for a couple years, I now have data from 1,200 Filipino students, which is a lot. And when you look at all the, the things that kind of are throughout our diaspora, things that are impacting the youth especially, um, like like disengagement in school or they're having very fraught relationships with extended family or they can't make it work with their moms. They really want their moms to understand that they just can't. It's a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And so the main character of this book, his name is Monolith. He's five years old and he's based on a real student, not one of mine. Um, so what happened was I went into a school as a settlement worker, and the teacher said to me, oh, it's too bad that you came now because we really had a situation with a family, but they've already moved on to another school. The situation was such that he was five years old, newly reunited with his mom, very, very violent, very angry. And so at nighttime, the mom would call people to help straightjacket him, to calm him down, so that way she could put him to bed at night. And I thought to myself, okay, like, just put it aside the straitjacketing, obviously. That's a whole other issue. But let's really look at this boy. Why is he so mad? Is it that he was left behind all of a sudden? He wasn't even sure he was coming to Canada? Was it a surprise? Who took care of him in the Philippines? Does he miss that person? Does he speak English? It's as I'm only speaking to him in English now that he's in Canada. Mm-hmm. What are the different reasons why? And so let's really explore the anger behind there's a separation from your mom the first time, and also the separation from whoever's taking care of you in the Philippines after you come to Canada. Now, generally, some of these stories can be quite traumatic with the tremendous amount of sacrifice for any community when you're leaving and the disconnection from the homeland and family and you're trying to find your way in the new world that uh, you have now moved to. How did it resonate with you personally? How emotional was it for you just to listen and do the research? It's so much emotional labor, and I myself am a very cheerful person, thank goodness. But at the same time, it's very hard to process this if you don't have an outlet. So for me, the, the outlet was writing, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. I know other people process through dance or through music. But for me, it was, okay, This now it's midnight. The world is quiet. I can't sleep because I'm thinking about these poor students and like, their parents and why can't this work and how are we going to make this work? And you worry and worry. And so I thought, okay. If I can put it into writing, then I can sleep. And this is the book that came out of all those late nights where I was just worried about the people that I was serving. Is that your writing process, writing late at night? Mm-hmm. Yes, unfortunately, I am definitely keeping with artist hours. Um, around midnight, my brain just lights up, and I can't not do something. And it's so funny because I know that other writers, they wake up very early, you know, 6 in the morning, and they have that one hour of bliss where no one's bothering them. Uh, for me, it's definitely late at night. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, this is a very broad question, but based on your research, your book, and obviously your, your, your experience, is the Filipino community in, in this country um, at a healthy place? Uh, do you feel that they're finding their way in, in Canada while still trying to hold on to their community and culture uh, from, from the old country? Oh, This is such a good question because over the course of this book's, you know, coming into being, Mm -hmm. I have felt increasingly like this is the best time to be Filipino in Canada. This is it. And then the next year it gets even better. And then the next year it gets even better. And I'm thinking, what a privilege to be part of this community. For one thing, 
I feel like we're getting more community organizations than ever. And a lot of them are run by young people, which is fantastic. We're getting a lot more role models in different communities. So ones that are doing, you know, things in, like, say, accounting or in politics or in teaching. And just seeing the number of role models who are willing to mentor the next generation is fantastic. Um, and I'm just, I'm in awe, honestly, of all of the different people across Canada who've been reaching out to me. Like, in the book has only been out for a month. And the response has been tremendous. And the amount of fan mail I've been getting from people, I don't know. At first, I thought it would just be from, you know, my old friends and maybe a couple of relatives. But no, it's like from people that I, I've never met before. And the stories are really touching them. I think part of it is because I made sure that although I live in Toronto, I had to make sure that the stories did not take place only in Toronto. And so that's where they take place in Asoyas. They're in um, Nunavut. They're in Cotonège in Montreal. Uh, we've got Oakville. We've got Sarnia, where I grew up. And we have to talk about diaspora in a way that's beyond the metropolis, right? Mm -hmm. And embrace the people that are really in spots where it's very hard to be Filipino sometimes. And how are they dealing with that? Mm -hmm. What do you think? Um, I'm curious. Why do uh, Filipinos feel close to Canada? What is it about Canada that the Filipino community likes? It's not just that they emigrate to Canada. They go to many other countries as well. Uh, but what is it about Canada? The, the, what is the power and allure of Canada in your mind? So Canada is an interesting place because of the caregiver program. We have this program where you can finish it and then afterwards apply for permanent residence. I know in other places, say, for instance, um, Riyadh, uh, that's one place where the book takes place, and you can't get citizenship there. You can't get permanent residence there. You're just forever on a work visa. Mm -hmm. So at least Canada offers newcomers a way to permanently settle and to therefore sponsor their families over reunite. So nowadays, because the caregiver program, for Filipinos anyway, has been around since like the 90s, we are reaching a, a point where there are entire extended families of Filipinos in Canada who can be traced back to one single caregiver. How amazing is that? So it's kind of like the way when we look at the U.S., this situation happened with nurses back in the day. So entire clans can be traced back to one Filipino nurse. So for Canada, it's a lot of the times one Filipino caregiver. Well, Jen Lee, uh, thank you for your time today. The book is Reuniting with Strangers. I highly recommend people pick it up. Uh, it is a great story uh, of the Filipino community's um, journey uh, to Canada and the challenges and struggles that are there as well. It, it points to uh, any time one leaves one's homeland, uh, the challenges that are there and uh, and how people uh, do overcome them as well. Jen Lee, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much and happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.